All right, here we are. We are sitting with Adrienne Santalaria and April Horton of the Dallas 24-Hour Club. Adrienne is the Communications and Development Director for the club. Why don't you say hi? Hi, guys. And Ms. April Horton is the administ- is an administrative assistant. Why don't you say hi? Hi, everyone. So we're here to talk a little bit about your guys' experience uh, with serving at the 2-4. Uh, whether it's on staff or not, it doesn't matter. We'll talk a little bit about passion and we'll just see where the conversation goes. How does that feel? Sounds awesome. We're excited. Awesome. All right. So Adrian, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to the 2-4 and a little bit of your history and experience? Sure. So I was in a sales and marketing role actually about three years ago, um, coming up in August and was absolutely miserable. Um, hated my job, did not love it, was not hitting my sales goals. It was just not a good, not a good scenario for me. Um, and I bring home my work and my unhappiness. And finally, my husband said, look, you've got to quit. We cannot do this anymore. We'll figure out what we'll do, but go in tomorrow and quit. So I did. Um, I hadn't, I wasn't working for a couple of weeks. And Marsha Williamson, who is the CEO, got a hold of me. Her youngest son is my husband's best friend from kindergarten on up. So my husband grew up in Marsha's house. Um, She got wind that I wasn't working and asked if I could come help her just on a contract basis with some stuff and help with the Chef Classic that was a couple months away. And I said, sure, I'm not doing anything else. I'm just sitting at home. So I did. And it just evolved into this permanent position and this permanent relationship. Um, I came on board and I said, you know, you really need to up your social media. I said, I can do that. Do you, you want me to? And she said, yeah, take it away. I said, you know, you really need a new website. Do you want me to design one for you? I can't. She said, take it away. So it just kept evolving into this permanent place where we are today. Um, I have had experience with recovery in not in my life, um, my husband's brother dealt with it. Um, but I didn't have a lot of experience with it. I didn't, I don't have any, like in my immediate family, I have some uncles that are, um, still battling. Um, but I would say my parents really sheltered me from that. They, they wanted to protect me from all of that. So when I came to the two, four, I had an idea of what it was going to be like working around alcoholics and addicts. And I was wrong. I just, I immediately fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the work. I've said this over and over again. This is not a job. This is a passion. I would work for free at Dallas 24 hour club. They could not pay me a single penny and I would still continue to work because I love it that much. I love our mission. I love what we stand for. I love what we do. And I love the people we help. And there it's a need. There's a need out there. So that's kind of brings us to today and my, how I got started, but it was all Marsha just calling me and a bad job. And you know, one door closes and another one opens. That's right. That's awesome. So you had a little bit of experience with it, just with your husband's brother, you said? Yes. Yeah. Was, was oh, he yeah. able to husband... do what? I was going to ask if he is, uh, has he, has he recovered himself or is he still battling? He passed away two years ago this month. Actually. Mm. Gosh, that sucks. Okay. Yeah. So it has had a little bit of an impact on your life enough for you to want to do it for free 
which is really, really cool, by the way. I mean, there are a lot of people who, you know, obviously want to pay their bills, but not everybody right. gets the opportunity to work at something that they really enjoy and love. Right. You know, it. I, I am very good at seeing potential in people. It's one of my strengths that I have. And Jack had so much potential. He was such a great guy. He just, he battled and he fought this and it, he, he lost in, in, in the end, but it just, it was like a tornado that went through the whole family. It affects everyone. Even if, even if Jack is not, was not talking to us at the time, even his silence affected us. Yeah. You know, every, everything around it had an impact on us and how we thought. And it was heartbreaking. It was sad. I mean, he, he didn't come to our wedding and that was one thing Joe and I begged him to come, begged him to come. And he just didn't, he didn't feel comfortable. He didn't want to go. And that's fine. Um, but that's something that has stuck with me that, man, I wish Jack had been there. I wish Jack was in our pictures. You know, it's just, it, it's heartbreaking. Everything around this disease is heartbreaking. It can be, it can be. But, uh, since you've been working at the two, four, I'm sure you've seen some success stories. Oh, my favorite quote. Um, one of our alums said it in a video. She said, miracles happen here. You watch them happen. And it is That's so true. true. It's it's the reason I keep going back because there are people that, you know, they'll relapse and they'll go back out. And that's so hard to see when you've gotten close to someone and you want it so bad for them, for them to go back out. But then there are the people that it sticks. They get it and it sticks and they're working a good program and they're bettering their lives and bettering their relationships with other people. And that's what makes me keep coming back. You know, the, the percentage of success that we see is around 25%, which is actually very high in terms of addiction and recovery. But still, that's one in four people that are going to make it and stay sober. That's low. That's so low. Um, so to see the ones that do make it and that work their program, and it's just, it's one of the coolest things in the world. That's awesome. Uh, do you know the... I want, I want, you know what? I've got Google pulled up. I'm curious. I've never looked it up, but I'm about to. Uh, I wonder what the recovery rate for other diseases would happen to be compared to uh, recovery. Do you guys know off the top of your head? I don't. That would be interesting, though. It isn't. Well, my keyboard's covered up. Never mind. I'm not looking it up. Um, but you're right. One out of four is really low compared to some diseases. Like, I know that we have vaccines for viruses and things like that. But in your experience, what have you, I mean, I'm, I'm a recovered alcoholic myself, so I've been able to be one of those success stories because of the 24 hour club. But what have you seen are the foundational principles that make for a success story? And don't worry, April, we haven't forgot about you. We'll come to you in a minute. That's really hard. And honestly, I think April would be better at answering that um, because she's in recovery herself. Um, the biggest one I would say is the willing willingness um, to do the work and to work the program. It's kind of like losing weight, like diet and exercise. You're not just going to lose weight sitting on the couch eating Doritos, right? You got to you gotta get out and go running and go work out and you got to do the work. And I feel recovery is the same. It's not just going to change if you don't change it. One of my favorite slogans is nothing changes if nothing changes. And it's so true. And it applies to recovery. It applies to anything in your life that you want a habit that you want to break. 
nothing's going to change if you don't change something. That's right. It always stays the same if you don't really go out there and make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, what's that? Thank you, April. <laughs> um, she's so good. She's so great. April, I, I couldn't, I missed it before I could touch my phone. Would you be willing to uh, share with us what, you're, what you just sent? We're doing this over Zoom, folks, so that's why they sound a little distant, but it'll be all right. Um, so I thought about what Gabe had said and just really looked at um, this article that talks about um, like survival chances between addiction and um, like other um, diseases like type 1 and 2 di diabetes um, and they based it on relapse. So mm. like basically a state of um, like doing well and then not. Right. So um, they said that addiction to opiates carries an 85% chance of relapse after one year of stopping usage. Um, and that's compared to type one and two diabetes with 30 to 50%. Um, hypertension is um, 50 to 70%. And I don't know, like these are very interesting um, they even have it compared to cancer and how um, addiction is actually like less of a um, like survival rate than some of these. So addiction and alcoholism are, what, according to what you're saying, they're more lethal than cancer is even. That is definitely what these numbers are saying. That's crazy. I believe it. I, believe it. I do too. It's, it's, it's insane. I, and you know, it, uh, I was dealing with alcoholism and I know a lot of people who dealt with drugs and of course in my experience, and I don't know if you guys can shed some light on this, but drugs seem to be more lethal than alcohol does. I mean, if you, if you were to just take the effects of the, of the substance itself and not count like DWIs, you know, or accidents while driving under the influence, if we took just how many people do you know die of alcohol overdose or alcohol poisoning as compared to a heroin overdose? You know, like drugs is also very inclusive of all sorts of different substances like heroin, marijuana, for whatever reason, um, meth, crack, cocaine, all that. So, I mean, what, what have you guys seen? What, what's, what's the one drug that seems to be the most common for the Dallas 24 hour club? Adrian. Why don't you take it, April? Um, I believe that based on our statistics, um, alcoholism is the number one that comes into the 2-4, um, but it's not been alcohol that we've seen take our residents. Um, one of the big, you know, when you, when you come into the 2-4, we have a wall um, where people's pictures are hanging and most every one of them um, are heroin. And I know for me, like, that's always a good reminder, but it's also scary because I'm like a recovering heroin addict. And so, um, I don't know, like the statistics are grim and, you know, there is no comparison between drugs, right? Like it's, there's, um, each one of them have their own like deadly consequences, right? But what I have seen 
in just my life and like my group of friends is alcoholism is a very slow death. Um, you know, I mean, you, I heard this, this man, um, at an AA meeting speak once and he had said, um, that alcoholism was like committing suicide slowly. But what I've seen with like a lot of my friends and I've had friends pass away this year of heroin overdoses and, um, drug overdoses are more unexpected, you know, and not unexpected in the sense that like they relapse and you don't see it coming, but there's a tolerance level that we build up. And when we go back out, we think that we can do that same tolerance. You know, I remember, um, you know, I've OD'd several times and it was never a thought of like, Oh, I'm taking too much. I'm OD. It was like just trying to get to that level that I had been to before. Um, chasing that high, right? I'm sorry. You're chasing the high. Yeah. And like your tolerance builds up and you need more and more and more and more. And, um, I understand that this, the same is true for alcohol. Um, alcoholism, but a lot of times that comes in the form of cirrhosis or, um, you know, things like that that are just more slow. But, um, I have seen a lot of overdoses in my life that people have not come back from. And, you know, that's an important distinction for, for people who don't understand the difference between an overdose and a fatal overdose. An overdose is just, you've put so much of this poison in your body that it will shut your body down to an extent, like you can end up in a coma or just simply pass out. So when you hear somebody talking about how they went out this weekend and got really messed up and, you know, they passed out and they don't remember anything, that's an overdose of alcohol. So, you know, it's blackouts. Yeah, blackouts are are a result and a symptom of an overdose of alcohol, uh, also known as alcohol poisoning. Right. So and you're right, you know, you, you mentioned the wall and I got chills. Uh, because I know a couple of the people on that wall, uh, I walk in and I, uh, I see him every day that I walk in there as often as it, I can. And, you know, one that the one that hurt was, uh, I'm not going to share a name, you know, for anonymity reasons, but it hurt really bad. Um, because she had texted me two days before that, before her overdose. And she was talking about how much pain she was in. And, you know, I, I offered to take her out for coffee, but it didn't go anywhere. And, you know, I, I don't feel like this guilt of I could have done more, you know, because I understand this disease and I've lived with it now for the last six, seven years. But, you know, it's it hurt because I used to feel like I could have done more. And I'm not going to go much further into it, but. Well, you were probably empathizing with her and you knew what she was going through. And even though you couldn't save her and you know that you can still have empathy for how she felt. That's true. That's true. The empathy was definitely there. Um, I, I remember what the pain was and I remembered knowing what could fix that, right? Fix, I say with quotes. Um, but what I've been given today is just leagues better. And, um, no, you're talking about taking the residence April. Adrian, what is uh what do you think is the major the largest contributor for for some of the residents who don't successfully graduate from the two four? 
So it's kind of a twofold question answer. We see a lot of people that will graduate successfully and then get an apartment or get into an Oxford house and then relapse. Um, we actually see that more often, I would say, than the people that relapse while they're with us. Um, and that I think is a lack of structure. I think, you know, our, our program is six months. It's, it's transitional living. So we're not meant to be a permanent home. We're a stepping stone. Um, but when you take that structure away, someone who's newly sober, they go back to old habits, mm. just like you would if you were breaking any kind of a habit. You're going to go back to your old ways unless you have the structure in place to keep up the work. And that's a big part that I think is just lack of lack of structure. I don't think it's some would say the willingness, the commitment, but I think there are lots of people that have relapsed that wanted it so badly. They just couldn't, they couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I could, I could see that as a big deal. Um, April, I, I don't want to put you out there. Is relapse a part of your story? You don't have to share if you don't want to. Oh, relapse is a huge part of my story. Fair enough. Um, you know, I have been trying to get sober for many, many years. I've never been able to stay sober. Um, I just had a year, um, like a couple weeks ago. And hey, congratulations. Thank you. I've just never been able to do it. And the thing that I found about the two, four that I think um, contributes to like relapse when people leave is when you're at the two, four, there is the biggest sense of community. There is constantly someone around you that knows what you're going through. There's constantly someone else you can help. You know, um, I mean, I don't know. I just know that, you know, a lot of us come from not having community, burning all of our bridges, right? And so we get to the two four. I'll never forget. It was the best experience of my life was sleeping on the floor at the two four. And I know that that sounds ridiculous to people who haven't done it. Yeah. But when I on that mat that first time, I just remember feeling such a sense of like I'm safe and I'm here. You know. And so I really believe that like miracles do happen at the two, four, because, um, I just remember like, it didn't matter like where we had come from, like who, who did what, like it, it didn't matter. Like we were all family in that moment because we all could just relate. Um, and so I think that a lot of times whenever people leave and they get disconnected from that sense of community, you know, you go to an Oxford and like Oxford's are great, but unless you get plugged in, you know, and, and they even talk about this, like whenever, um, you know, find fellowship involved and like being of service, like those things are so important because like self self-centered, that's the root of our problem. Right. And so yep. that's what the book tells like, us. Yeah. That's what the book tells us. Um, and I believe it. And so like that constant thought of others is what is supposed to like help. And it does, but unless you're getting plugged in and like finding ways to do that, um, I think that definitely like relapses happen. And then, you know, I think, um, what a lot of people don't understand is also the middle obsession. It's a very real thing. Um, I'm a year sober and a lot of days I still think getting high is going to fix it. 
Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Your the microphone was catching uh, some extra stuff behind it. You talked about the mental uh, obsession and how that contributed to your relapse too. Is that right? Yeah, and it, it's something that's like very real. Um, you know, it, it's just you could be having like a fantastic day, and then that thought just comes to your brain of like a drink would make it better, or like a shot of dope would make it better, and um, like unless you're doing like everything in your power to like have a mental defense against it, you're, you're just not going to, you know, and that comes to like, my power and stuff like that. but um, the mental obsession is a very real thing. I agree. I think the mental obsession is really real uh, because I know that for me, just from my own experience and Adrian, you might be able to shed a little light on from the outside perspective. When I woke up in the morning, the first thought that I had was about me. So there's the selfishness and self-centeredness, right? I thought, man, it's too early. I don't want to wake up. Why does my head hurt so bad? Oh, I know. Alcohol. Hey, you know what? Speaking of, maybe I should go get another drink. Maybe that'll calm things down. I was never a Bloody Mary guy. I was always, you know what? Let's just go hard again. See what happens. But um, so yeah, the mental obsession uh, for people who don't know is really a place where the mind thinks of nothing else. All we can think about is the next drink or the next drug. And I equate it to, uh, to determination in business, right? An entrepreneur, all he's focused on is the next client. All he's focused on is the next task. All that they're focused on is getting that next contract. These are the only things that they're focused on. It's an obsession. That's what they dedicate themselves to. There's no room for anything else, no room for a spouse, kids, none of that. So when we're, we as addicts and alcoholics are stuck in our addiction, that's all we can think about. Um, and Adrian, I wanted to ask from the perspective of seeing it happen to another person, what kind of thought process does the family member have? Um... Or did you have specifically to you? What what kind of things were you thinking of before yeah. you got involved? So I'm another one of my talents, my strength strengths is empathy. I can easily empathize with people and what they're going through. I may not agree with it, but I understand it. So when I see someone struggling with the mental obsession, to me it, it my initial reaction is look at the facts. Like, let's break it down. Let's look at the facts. You don't need the drink. You're going to have, you know, all these things. But at the same time, I empathize with them. And I understand that this is how their brain works. And that's the bottom line. It's it's wired this way. It's just kind of like I deal with depression. So if I don't take my depression medicine, I'm sad. I'm just sad all the time. I will have no reason to be sad, but I will be very down. Um, so it's just kind of the way your brain is wired. And you know, it's just, it kind of goes back to being willing and working the program and doing what it takes to, to move past that. Just like I can't get off my depression medicine or I'm going to fall into a depression and not get out of bed. You know, you have to stay on top of it. It's, it's a daily, it's a daily grind. It's not something that you can just do once and then kind of forget about it and put it away and think it's not going to reap its head back up. It will. How do you, you're right. That's a, that's a really good point. It, it will come back, you know, for anybody who takes those kinds of medication you were talking about, antidepressants, uh, 
it's true. You'll just sink and there's nothing that you can do about it. It just happens. And, you know, we were talking about the mental obsession just a few moments ago, and that is a very similar result of the symptom, right? We don't think about anything else, but when we're focused on recovery, that's what ends up happening, right, April? We're focused so hard on it that that's what we get. The moment that we step away from it, and which is so crazy because, you know, you can miss one day of prayer and that's it. You're off to the races. Your brain just automatically goes to that use or that next drug. And uh, it's it's so insane that 85% of people go right back out to this mess, whether it's for whatever reason, doesn't really matter. So, okay. Uh, One of the saddest parts about this disease, aside from the fact that it is killing our population, is that, in my opinion, most people end up hitting rock bottom before they go and get help. They end up losing everything before they try and turn it around. And that to me is just, it's one of the heartbreaking things that's centered around this disease because they do. I mean, our, our residents have lost everything. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them, they've, they've torn their life apart before they've come to the realization that they need help. And I wish, I wish I could just shake someone on their first drink and be like, go get help now. Don't wait. Go do it now. <laughs> on their first drink, it's not a problem yet, Adrienne. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, can't make people, though. April and I were talking about that this morning. It's like trying to get someone to go to Al-Anon that, you know, has a relative in recovery. They might not. Trying to get that person to go to Al-Anon is just like trying to get the alcoholic or addict to go to a meeting. If they're not willing, they're not going to go. That's a good point. And I think that that is really the crux of it. If you don't want it, you're not going to go get it. Right. So I think that, do you, uh, do you guys think, Adrian, we can start with you and then we'll go to, well, actually, let's start with April. April, I want to know. How did you come to the to uh, the to the twenty four hour club? So um, I mentioned earlier that I had tried to get sober lots of times. Um, I I ended up losing everything. I mm. um, I had I had a friend tell me once. I remember thinking I wasn't that bad. I'm like I don't understand. Like I I wasn't really, and she was like, girl, you're in a wheelchair and like, people don't feel sorry for you. You had to do something. (laughs) I was like, okay. Yeah. But, um, I have, I had tried to do treatment a lot of times and I never could quite get it. And, um, I had actually gone to detox for like 18 days. Um, a friend of mine is a doctor. He talks to me and then, um, sent me to this rehab out in Lubbock and, you know, I was freshly sober and got into a fight with a drug counselor who didn't have a drug problem. So I didn't think she should talk to me about mine. Mm. Um, And so I, um, my old sponsor was like, look, like you don't have anywhere else to go. Um, Hold on real quick, real quick. What are you doing? Cause it's messing with the microphone. No, it's okay. It's it's okay if you do uh, if you fiddling have a fidget. Things. I was fiddling with a pen. I'm a, I'm a fidgeter. It's okay. I I just wanted to make sure that uh, the microphone wasn't picking it up because it's carrying you out. So bad. Yeah. So uh, just be aware of that. That's all. You can still fidget. So sorry. 
It's okay. No worries. Uh, you were talking about how a, a drug rehabilitation counselor wasn't being listened to because you just couldn't relate to them, having knowing that they didn't have that experience that you do. Right. She, she, um, I just didn't really think I needed to listen to anything she had to say because she had never been in my shoes. Right. And, um, my old sponsor, like I called her and I told her I was getting kicked out of rehab and, um, she was like, well, you can go to the two, four. And I don't know how many times she had told me to go to the two, four. And I was like, Nope, not happening. Um, but this time was different. I, I had nowhere else to go and I was broken and beat down and, um, hopeless. And so I landed at the two, four and I remember like just wanting a shower, like it was that bad. But, um, you know, once I landed there, there was this, this sense of hope that you could like see all over these other people's faces. And, um, I don't know. It was like just an incredible experience. I think I told Adrian earlier, I was like, that was like one of the most incredible experiences of my life was being at the two four. Um, because you could look around and you could see hope. Um, and like, yeah, there's people that go back out and like, there's people that aren't ready, but like, what about all the people that are, you know? And, um, my old sponsor told me to like stick with the winners. And I was like, what does that even mean? Um, but you quickly find out when you're around that many people that um, you find out who the winners are. Um, that's true. You do, you do see it, right? Like you can tell. Um, and the question that I wanted to ask, the reason I asked you the, that particular question was, and Adrian, you can answer this part too. Do you think that when a person is forced into these situations because we were, we mentioned Al-Anon and from the family's perspective, you know, they just want to shake them and say, you know, don't you realize what you're doing to us? And oh yeah, we get it as addicts and alcoholics for whatever reason, when that's thrown into our faces, we just use that as another excuse, right? We have to want it. So when someone is pushed into it, and then they talk to these doctors with all these letters behind their names, like, great, good for you. You're making plenty of money. You don't understand. What is it about the understanding of a person who has been there that you think changes it for a person who is still suffering from this disease? I think that there's everything to do with it, right? Like, I really believe that if somebody didn't my sponsor now, for instance, like if she didn't sit down with me and tell me some of her experience and what she had gone through, I would have never been willing to listen to her because I think a lot of times people come from such a well-meaning place, right? Like, um, you know, I've had doctors and things like that tell me things and I always just kind of used it as more fuel to like, well, that I just, you know, whatever the excuse was, but um, I always thought it came from a place of judgment, you know, like if, if you are looking down your nose at me, like you're better than me, like you, or I thought that maybe like they didn't understand what I had gone through. And if I used to use the line, like, well, if you had my life, you'd use to, you know, mm -hmm. but I, um, quickly came to realize that my sponsor had my life and she was sober. You know, she had gone through things that I had gone through. Um, 
and like all these other women in recovery and like men too, but, um, just having someone there that said like, Hey, I've walked through this. Like, let me walk you through it is much different than somebody trying to tell me which direction I need to go, you know? And so I just think it's really, um, incredible. And like, it's why I work with other women today. And Adrienne, how, how have you seen, can you tell when someone walks into the 24 hour club, whether or not they have that willingness or whether or not they're breaking, broken down to the point of being ready to try and do something different? So I don't see, I mean, I'll see people in the halls, but really it's the program managers, Sarah and Joseph and Briar and Colleen that are seeing people their first day and the first time. So can I tell? No. Could they? Probably. I mean, that's part of the screening process. You know, we, we only have so many beds, so we want people that are, they want to be there. They don't need to be there. No one's forcing them to be there. Our people want to be at the two four. They want to get help. Um, so that's part of the screening is, you know, they, they make sure that the new intake is willing. So do I, can I see it? No, but our staff can absolutely. And just to touch on April's point, I completely agree. I would never go up to someone in recovery and try to understand what they deal with on a daily basis because I don't, I can't just like someone who doesn't have depression can't understand what I go through, you know, until you've walked in those shoes, it's just an opinion. It's not, it's not anything more than that. So that's why we pair people like April and like Briar and Colleen and women with other women that have gone through the same steps that they have. Because of that understanding. Right. So it, you were talking about how they go through a screening process. What are some of the reasons that a person, for anybody who's wondering, maybe their family member can show up at the 2-4? What are some of the reasons that the 2-4 may say no? There aren't many, to be honest. Um, and April, feel free to add in here. One, if they're not willing, you know, if family's forcing them to be there and they don't want to be there, then it's, it's just not going to work out. They're going to burn off in a couple days. I mean, we, it's a strict program that we have and a lot of structure and rules and you don't want to be there. Kind of like what my dad, my dad's a full-blooded Italian. He used to say to me as a kid, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Mm. You know, tough love. Um, we are surrounded by schools. So anyone with any kind of a harassment on their record um, can't, can't come in as well. The aggravated charges. Aggravated charges. Yes. Thank you. Um, like f- physical that, altercations or things like that. What do you mean? You can't. So there's a difference between like aggravated assault and assault. Okay. So or things like that. And so um, that distinction between the two. So if a person had, I don't know, this is crazy. But if a person had some serious penitentiary time at a federal prison and it was for a major trafficking crime, would that be a a type of flag that the 2-4 would say no? We have people come in from prison all the time, you know, and or come from different treatment centers. Well, they're not treatment centers, right? But they are like Wilmer, you know, Mm, or like Safe P and things like that. I mean most all of us have drug charges, you know? So I just, there's, um, 
I'm not sure exactly what the difference is between like aggravated and things like that, but I don't believe that trafficking is unless no, it, it has to be aggravated enough to where they can't be within certain feet of an elementary school. Or and I want to say that like aggravated is like with a weapon. Um, but I'm just not sure. The best be thing we can say for the listeners is just call, call the office and talk to them because we're not in the program um, area of the two, four. So call Aaron, call Joseph, call Briar, talk to them and they, you know, they'll walk you through the process. Yeah, I've heard. And the person knows if they have aggravated charges or not. So that's one of the questions you, uh, and I was asked that question, but uh, I was also subject to a background check. Do y'all still do that? No. Yeah. Okay. Just in case they're lying. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So we'll work a background check even we just had we hired a summer intern and she had to go through a background check anyone on property it's tim grigsby our coo he runs a tight ship and it's why we're successful yeah uh, I, I don't think tim was there at the old house was he before it closed down you know he was for a couple i think a couple of years but i don't know when because okay. i know he and marcia worked together and then he left and then came back Okay. Uh, when I say the old house for people who don't know, the Dallas 24 hour club, I think was built in the seventies, wasn't it? The original building. I don't know. So it was a hotel where Bonnie and Clyde actually stayed. Oh, wow. Building was. Um, I didn't know that part. Yeah, it was, we, but we got into that building I think sometime, I don't know. I'm not even going to guess to be honest. The history, because, so Lee Tillman, our founder, founded the 2-4 in 1969 because he was 12-stepping a man at some kind of a meeting room, and they were closing. It was midnight, and they were closing, and they were trying to kick him out. And he said, there's got to be some place that's open 24 hours where people can go and get help. So he started Dallas 24-Hour Club. And in the decades since, it's, you know, changed different board directors, different staff, and really the history is unfortunately very loose. We know, we know there was a house on Fremont Street, and then we know that we came to the Ross house. But other than that, we don't, we don't really know much about the history. Um, the new facility for everyone who's listening opened in February of 2018. And that was... Our yeah, it was wonderful. The old building was dilapidated. It was falling down. I think there was a possum at one point that fell through the ceiling of a meeting. A meeting <laughs> That's room. not a surprise. Um, it was infested in bed bugs. It just, the whole area on Ross and Dallas is getting rezoned. And we eventually would have gotten zoned out. We would have had to move. So Marsha Williamson, our CEO, she really rallied um, and built us a new facility. She had a good childhood friend um, who has KDC um, and they, she talked to him and he said, look, I've done all of these projects for all of these other development contractors throughout the city. And they always ask me for what can I do to repay you? And he said, I just thought of what they can do. They're going to build you a new facility. Mm. They built us a $5 million facility, almost 90% pro bono. It was amazing. We had contract guys, concrete guys on the job site that said, I got sober here 20 years ago. So wow. we're now working on the new facility. Wow. It was absolutely amazing. Um, it's state of the art facility. It has been built to withstand time. 
our baseboards are made out of rubber instead of wood. So when you're sloshing a mop around, you're not going to damage them. Mm, um, the concrete awesome. alone was like $950,000. It's a concrete building. I mean, this building is not going anywhere. It is meant to be a high traffic facility that's going to last a long time. They built it very well. That's, that's incredible stuff, man. I you know, you were, do you know what year Tillman found the Ross house? Uh, 1969, he founded Dallas 24 hour club. And then they had a little house. Let me pull up history here. While you're doing that, uh, I remember when I came back from Oregon cause I was at the Dallas 24 hour club in 2000 and, uh, oh gosh, 15. Yeah. The end of 2015. And, uh, I left right before I think Christmas, uh, to go home to Oregon and make some amends with family. And when I came back, I remember that the house had closed not even a handful of months when I got back. And I remember it, people were saying that it was going to get torn down. And uh, at the end of the year of 2016, I think is when it was torn down, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So at uh, the end of 2016, it was torn down. And I remember the building started to get rebuilt. And my wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time, uh, and I would drive by and Gosh, I remember getting chills every time I drove by, seeing the frames come up. And then a couple months later, I drove by and the frames were covered with uh, with the concrete slabs. And then that turned into sheetrock. And then we were able to walk through. I think it was illegal. So I don't want to say too much. And who let us in? But we weren't supposed to be on site without hard hats. And we definitely were. And so uh, we got to walk through the site. And it was just incredible. And I remember... Uh, the guy that was there with us telling us everything that was going to be there and everything that it was going to lead to. And it was just, it was an incredible thing to watch it be rebuilt, knowing what the old house was like. Right. Yeah, so go I ahead. Know we had a lot of people that were very worried that the new facility would lose the spirit of the two four. That's true. I was one of them. I was really, really worried. Yeah. I know a lot of people were, and it's understandable. We totally, we got it. We understood um, you know, the old building was something special. It was really the last house on the block. Like if you were at the 24 hour club, you wanted to get help because there was a good chance you were sleeping in bed bugs. Like it was not a nice facility at all. It's true. I remember when, uh, I'd be in meetings, there would be people who were, you know, uh, what's the words that we used? Um, chronic relapsers who would say, you know, I'd, Oh, I'm in a bad shape and I, I just can't get sober, but I'm not going to 24 hour club. Those people are crazy. We were definitely those people. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that we've tried and I feel like we've succeeded is to keep the spirit alive in the new facility. You know, we have a new state of the art facility, but that doesn't mean that the reason we're here has changed at all. We're still here to help the fellow alcoholic and addicts. Right. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, that you were talking about the spirit. Uh, I remember the first couple of times that I went admittedly, and maybe you can talk about this to April. Cause I think you came in handfuls of months after it reopened. Um, when we first got there, we saw everything that was going down and we started to hear some of the chatter that the administrative team, uh, not including you, Adrian, I, I don't think I'd met you at that point, but like some of the language had changed. And some of us who grew up in the old house thought, oh, no, it's getting corporate. This is going to turn into a rehab facility. 
The people are going to show up. And if they don't have insurance, they're going to have to walk away. Like, I mean, it's, it's stuff like that that really scared us, you know, a lot of the alums. And, um, so we, we didn't want to see that, but for the first couple of months, it sounded like it was, that's where it was headed. And April, can you tell us how that wasn't true for you? Like it wasn't set up like a rehab and the spirit was still there. Oh gosh, when I got to the T4, it definitely did not feel like rehab. It, um, you know, I remember when they told me I was going to be sleeping on the floor. I'm like, what? But that's such a great way to check your willingness. You know what I mean? Like rehab, you get like these nice sheets and like a bed. And I want to add for everyone who's listening, when we say sleeping on the floor, you're sleeping on a mat that's actually a few inches thick and actually it's very comfortable. So yes, you're on the floor, but it's not like we just throw you on the floor and without a pillow or anything. <laughs> now, now calm down. Now you, you were, you're talking about a mat that's a couple inches thick. I slept on a mat that was so worn down. I was basically sleeping on the tile. In fact, I don't even think I used it. The mats when I got there were great. Um, <laughs> but it, you know, and we, and we really did have everything we needed, but um, you know, I don't know. It was just such a great experience. And I think that like, I can understand where people would think that like the spirit of the two forward change, but I think it's really one of the greatest things is probably that most of our staff, like at least the like program staff and stuff like that, like they've been there, like they slept on the floors, they went to the program, they got sober there. And so like, they want to keep the spirit of the two, four alive just as much as, you know, the alum and stuff like that. And so, you know, when I got to the two, four, um, you, you would hear a lot of people talk about the old two, four, um, yeah, the old house. Yeah. And I had heard so many stories about the two, four before I got there. Um, like I didn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> we were but, those people. Yeah. But the thing is, um, it was just a really incredible experience. Um, when I came in, like I, I didn't have insurance. Like I didn't have, you know, I came in, um, they told me to come, I came. Um, and I remember like just a couple days after that, like another woman came in and like same situation, like she didn't have any money, like she didn't, you know, and it, so it wasn't anything that, you know, like rehab and you have to check in and like all these, like you do have to go through a screening process and intake process. A little bit of paperwork. Yeah. Paperwork and stuff like that. But really if Joey does your intake, you get an hour full of inspirational content from Joey while doing paperwork. <laughs> so oh, I mean, like he, he tests your willingness right there, but he does. I don't know. I think that having a staff that's been there is such a, yeah, I wanted to reiterate that too for people who don't know. We don't we don't meet the higher people that have gone through our program. It just works out that way because we get to know these people. So when we have an opening, we immediately think, "Oh, so and so would be great for this position." Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how April was hired. We didn't we didn't she didn't interview for the process, for the position. We randomly had an opening and we thought April would be perfect for this and we went and offered her the job. And it just, it, it's such a neat niche that she went through the program because like we were saying earlier, she can now say, I've been in your shoes. So when a new resident comes up to her and says, you don't understand, you don't get it. She can say, I do understand. I've been there. I slept on the floor too. 
And that's how our program staff is as well. They all got sober at the 2-4. Again, that was not intentional. It just happened that way. But it's a really neat niche that we have. And I want to add something about the new building, too. Um, April, I'm going to – April is in a wheelchair. And if we did not have the new building, April would not have been able to come to the 2-4. That's true. There was there was barely any accessibility. I mean, there were, right. uh, there were only three steps to the front door. But dang gone, those were some monumental – three steps well, if you're in a wheelchair and the door sizes i mean we are up to ada code now so we can take anyone with a disability and that's huge that's huge that just added another level of individuals that we can help yeah it's you can really tell too if, if anybody's been able to experience that old house and you walk to this new facility or you've been afraid of it don't be i mean this the spirit is really still there and you can feel it when you walk in and I mean, for in my experience and in my opinion, now I have a theory. I'm pretty certain that the spirit that's there is Christian. But look, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a few steps back. It doesn't have to be. You know, I, I see you guys nodding. It doesn't have to be. If you have a different God, bring him. You know, God is God. We yes, we are. We are not faith based. However. Everyone that's there, yes, believes in some form of a higher power. And right. that's, it's throughout, it's throughout AA as well. Um, so, I mean, you'll hear different slogans and things that, I mean, are Christian ideas behind them. But, you know, we prayed before we started talking today as a staff, we pray before every staff meeting. It's just part of who we all are. And if someone didn't feel comfortable, then that would be different. But everyone on our staff is Christian. And so it, it's, it's not, you're right. It's not a Christian uh, facility and it's not a Christian based program. What I think separates the Dallas 24 hour club from other rehabs is not just the willingness of the residents to do the work, not just the experience of the staff members who have been there and slept on those same mats without sheets or with them, you know, whatever. Uh, walking in with holes in their socks and shoes. But I think what really separates it is the presence of something that will reveal itself to you if you're willing and open to hear it. And it could be, I mean, people in the Christian faith could be wrong. We don't know. But what we do know is that there's something and you can feel it as soon as you walk in and it just envelops you. Not in a way to conform you or change you, those things just end up happening, right? You just end up changing because of this spirit, but you feel it and it's a welcoming, safe, secure presence. And you don't know what, you don't know what to call it. And when you go through the work of the two, four, which is what I want to talk about next, it starts to reveal itself to you. What are, so here's the question, April, real quick, April, you were hired. Were you still a resident when you were hired? Yes. Wow. Okay, cool. Did they give you free rent? I'm sorry. No. Did they give you free guest fees? <laughs> No, they sure did not. <laughs> okay. We started a resident intern program a couple of years ago. Um, I no started kidding. it because I saw a need. Number one, I needed some help with things and we didn't have in the budget to hire someone. So I thought we have all these people here that are willing to help us out. Let's use one of them. Number two, it lets me get to know the resident on a deeper level so that I can be a reference for them. And number three, it gives them experience into 
a possible marketing communication administrative role that they might want to be in. So that? April had applied for our resident in, intern position, and she was our resident intern at the time when that position opened up. So we had been working alongside of her and knew, you know, we worked really well with her. She was smart. She was honest. She was just on top of everything. We just knew she would be the perfect fit. And that's awesome. No, I mean, it's there. does it extend not just to the administrative side of the Dallas 24 hour club? If I'm not mistaken, the hubcap cafe is also yeah. something that uh, residents can utilize to get a job outside. Is that right? Yes. The hubcap cafe, which is our onsite restaurant, it's called the hubcap cafe because we make pancakes that are the size of hubcaps. It's they true. Are- They're amazing. Um, Our residents run the kitchen. They run the Hubcap Cafe. We have a kitchen supervisor who was a resident, um, but our residents staff it. They're the ones doing the cooking. They're the ones taking the orders. It gives them an opportunity in a culinary field, in a restaurant to have experience in that line of work. I will never forget, we had a gal maybe a year and a half ago, she worked in our kitchen. And she sat me down and said that was the first job she had ever had outside of drug dealing. And she is in her late thirties, I think around there. Wow. That's powerful. Powerful. And she, she worked in the kitchen for the entire time she lived at the two four. We're all about helping, helping people, giving people the skill set so that they can go on and lead their lives, not only in sobriety and recovery, but in employment and career financially, you know, do you need help with a budget? We're happy to help you do that. Do you need help writing a resume? We'll help you do that. We're there for help because we know that a lot of these people, they have been on the streets. A lot of them were homeless, some for decades. I mean, they don't know how to write a resume. They need someone to help them teach them to do that. And a lot of our people didn't have a lot of guidance growing up. You know, I, I will, Another one that sticks out in my mind is a lady that her parents used to give her marijuana when she was four years old to calm her down. Wow. Like she wasn't, she wasn't taught how to handle her finances and how to run a budget. That's where we can come in and help her with that. Help them. That's it. What are, what are some of the ways that uh, residents have been able to walk away from the 24 hour club, having done an internship or having worked at the hubcap cafe? How many of those folk have been able to graduate from the program? and been able to carry on with uh with a job outside a lot um a lot one guy stands in mind we partnered there's another nonprofit agency um scholas scholas i'm blanking on the name um they have an eight to ten week it training program that is free information technology no it's something different But it's it's uh tech, it's like a tech job yeah, sort of. IT. Yeah. yeah. IT. So you go through training with them. It's like eight to five, nine to five, and afterwards you come out certified, and they help place you in jobs. And one of our two of our young men went through their training program. One of them was my resident intern, and I saw how great he was working, and I kept talking to him. You're so much more capable than working at fast food, which is what you're doing. Let's get you in this program. You're IT driven. You're interested in it. Let's get you in this program. He went through the program. He worked nights and weekends because he had to pay his guest fees while living with us. Right. Went to this IT training program all day, Monday through Friday, and he got a job at American Heart Association. 
doing IT for them. Wow. That's insane. Just from a certificate. Yep. That's craziness. Uh, now, good. I will add, and this is the hard part about this disease. Yeah. He passed away a few months ago. Overdose. And that goes back to show you that it's, this is a daily grind. You have to look at each day, one day at a time, because if you get, if you stray aside from it, you're going to go back. You're going to go backwards. That's true. You were talking about a lack of structure, right? Um, I think there's also a, uh, an element of accountability that needs to be there too. Right. For sure. Uh, what, we were talking about it earlier. What may have happened is he probably took a step back from the program. You know, he stopped taking his medicine. Right. Right. Uh, April, whenever uh, you started doing this internship, I don't think Adrian did it on purpose, but she talked about encouraging this guy to go to this program and he, and say, telling him you're perfectly capable. Were you, was it one of the first times that you started to hear those kind of words being said in your direction? Like, you can do this. You're capable. Definitely. Like, I will, um, I will tell you that when I came to the 2-4, I had no hope, no self-esteem, no, just nothing, right? Um, and one of the things that, like, the two four has given me is incredible people in my life who like build me up Adrian being one of them you know she she's incredible because um you know I can I can easily get down on myself right like I think I need to do better I have this other expectation or I get kind of delusional in my head right because I'm an addict um and one of the like best things is um I didn't really have people that believed in me in my life. And I feel like sometimes Adrian and Marsha believe in me way more than they should. But, um, you know, like it's, it's really become like, I just, I just love, love them so much because, um, you know, I just really, I didn't think I was capable of anything. I remember Adrian made me take this strength finder test and I was so surprised that I had any, like, and everybody has strengths, right? But Really, when when that popped up on the screen, I was so, so, like, confused, basically, because all my life, I had really just thought I was absolutely nothing. Um, And, like, knowing that there was people in my life to pour into me and to, um, like, build me up so that I could have the life. And, like, Adrienne talked about how she can see potential in people. and they saw my potential way before I do. And I still think sometimes they do. Um, but it, it, it's been one of the greatest things. And back to that accountability, right? Um, so one of the things for me is if I would have just left the 2-4, I'm not sure where I would have been because I needed that accountability, you know. Um, and so leaving the 2-4 while also working at the 2-4 gave me still that accountability. Like I know I'm going to be around people that have seen me every day and they're going to know when I'm being weird or they're going to like Tim, you know, he, he runs a tight ship. So I'm still getting, you know, we still get drug tested. Like there's people in, in my life every day that are looking at me and like gauging where I'm at. And, but if I wouldn't have had that, I'm not sure, sure where it would be, especially, um, you know, going through like such a, weird time with COVID, 
you know, like I needed purpose and I needed accountability and, um, working at the 2-4 has given me that. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned COVID and the and the structure that is involved with having that job and Nick, that accountability. Uh, I saw a report, I can't remember the numbers, but I saw a report that said that uh, COVID has led to more overdose deaths than just in the last handful of months than they saw the entire year of 2019. And I... I believe, we've seen it. I, I believe that. Alumni and residents. I mean, we've had three pass away April since March. Yeah. One of my best friends passed away a few weeks ago. It has been very hard on the recovery community, not being able to go to meetings and see people and connect because part of being in recovery is you're connected to a community. And when you are forced to stay home, you're not connected or you're not as easily connected. You can still do Zoom and still do, but it's much harder. So someone who's newly sober or maybe just has a year or, you know, gets in their head. I mean, it's, it's been very challenging and we've seen that. I can imagine. So, you know, I, I, uh, my sponsor, who's kind of a hard ass, he, uh, he's old school AA. Uh, I think he came from a lineage that goes all the way back to Dr. Bob. Um, he told me, after about three weeks, I wasn't able to talk to him because he was just so busy. And, uh, you know, a lot of his sponsees, a lot of my sponsor brothers were calling him. And, uh, you know, he told me, he said, you know, Gabriel, it's, I haven't called you back yet and I'm really sorry. And here we are a month later and I know you're good. I know you're okay, which was encouraging because I got a lot of respect for this guy. But he said, this whole mess is really testing a lot of people's spirituality and a lot of people's recovery. And a lot of these guys are having, are their cracks are showing, you know, he's, this is his theory. This isn't what I believe, but he believes that there's their recovery was based on others and seeing others and being a part of that community that you were talking about. But he said that the spirituality wasn't there. Um, and he says that he knows that God is strong with me and that God is keeping me, keeping me sober every day. And, uh, you know, I, when this happened, I started getting really involved in something, you know, I started sharing meetings on zoom. Like I didn't give a hell who, who was there. I, I think I was part of a meeting that I didn't even speak the language, but I was there dadgummit. So like April, can you talk about, um, how that accountability, not, not just the accountability. Can you talk about how you responded to having to stay home every day? Like what were some of the things that helped you? I'll tell you, I was absolutely lost. Like, you know, you talk about like that recovery being based on doing all these things, you know, and yeah, and service me, work. Yes, a lot of my recovery was based on service work, right? Like working with sponsees, like I had commitments in my home groups, I had a couple of HIs every week. Like, you know, there was really not a night that I wasn't in a meeting working with a sponsee or um like at an H and I. There just there wasn't. Yeah, it's vital. Like, Yeah, but I didn't realize how much of my recovery depended on me doing those things. And like since since this, I have like had to like work through some stuff with my higher power. Like I've I've got a lot of hangups with with um you know like spirituality and stuff. And like I I work on it every day. You know it Kim right. Like I may never find him, but like my job is to seek. Um. But I, I did like, um, I shared some zoom meetings. I would, um, 
you know, I would hop on like different town Zoom meetings. I remember there's like a, there's one you can call into Houston. Um, but I would do like some local ones back in my hometown. I still have like my home groups meeting that I was doing. Yeah. Um, and so, but I was like chomping at the bit for meetings to open back up. And then, you know, now their cases are going up and stuff like that. But I think it's a good reminder that like, maybe I'm not where I should be with my spiritual side of the program. If like, I'm still waiting to depend on something else, you know? Um, and so it's really just been an eye opener um, to, for me to be able to check my recovery and see where it's coming from. I get that. Um, Adrian, are you guys still taking residents in if they show up in spite of the COVID? Yes. So um, we actually just today um, are reclosing again to the public with everything spiking, which is, I keep saying heartbreaking, but it is. It's it's very hard for us because we are about community and it's really challenging and sad when our community members are not on property. But our our first priority and our first concern is the health and safety of our residents and those community members. So we, again, are closing the public. We will continue to take intakes and we will do to-go orders out of the Hubcap Cafe. No kidding. Um, so, yes. Oh my gosh, the best cheeseburger I've ever had. For, for best. And uh, residents can meet with sponsors on property. They just have to be outside. Um, so we're, you know, we just, it, it sucks. It's, I, I, I'm not in recovery and I had a hard time with the COVID thing. I, the first three weeks were horrible for me. My husband jokingly tells people that he almost lost me. And it's kind of true. I was losing my mind. I had, I'm really big on changing your mindset and changing the way you think about things when things aren't going the way you think they should be going. Right. And I remember talking to April and I tell her when something comes up with her, I'll say, change your mindset, change the way you look at it. Right. And I'll never forget. I was telling her how hard of a time I was having. And she just kind of looked at me and I said, I need to change my mindset. Don't I? It's <laughs> what you tell me to do. And I did, I had to look at each day. What am I grateful for today? Okay. I'm grateful for being able to work at home. I'm grateful for still having my job. I'm grateful for spending time with my husband, more time with him. My dogs are very happy, you know, like rather than take it on as me, 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 this is happening to me. It's what are the good things that are happening in addition to it? But COVID has been challenging for a lot of people. I think it's not been easy. That's a hundred percent true. I mean, even for people who are quote unquote making it, it's, it's still really rough, right? Um, I think I the reason that my sponsor called me back is like I called and said, I miss hearing your voice and this is getting really scary for me. Like, are you okay? <laughs> so, um, but what, you, you were talking about pe- bringing people in and how you're still in doing intake and sponsees can meet with their sponsors outside. Are you guys taking measures when you have someone intake like are you quarantining them for a certain amount of time what what does that look like for someone who's thinking about coming yeah absolutely so they won't be quarantined um and i would need to check with tim on this so if you're interested please call the office but what we were doing when we were closed previously was they would have had to come from some facility where they've been for at least 14 days so like a treatment facility or somewhere where they've been you know, not exposed to anything. Um, Somewhere like green. Yes. Yeah. 
we take taking temperatures. If someone does have any kind of a symptoms like a fever, then they are quarantined on property. Um, we also, which is so wonderful, we have the Parkland Homes Unit, which comes to our facility twice a week, I believe, April. She's nodding yes. I think it's twice a week and gives health care to our residents, which is great. They're so great. Um, they just pull up the van and our residents can go on the van and the bus and get any kind of medical help that they may need. So that's been very helpful as well, dealing with COVID. But we are very, we're very fortunate. We have not had a case. Um, we had a resident the last couple of weeks that had worked alongside of someone who tested positive, but our resident tested negative. So that was great. Um, I know Tim is working on getting the antibiotic test um, available to our residents because Walgreens is now administering it. Yep, that's true. So we're doing, we're taking every measure and we really have to applaud Tim. I mean, he, I said it earlier, he runs a tight ship and there's a reason he runs a tight ship and it's because it works. That's true. Measure for success. And, you know, you, I think we were talking about, I think you told me, uh, 25% of people, uh, successfully graduate. Is that right? Successfully discharge. Yeah. Successfully discharge. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, gosh, I can't imagine what it was before Tim showed up. I, I, cause I never met him until after the new building was built. So I think he came a little after I showed up or after I was a resident, but I remember while I was living there and maybe you can shed some light on this too, April. I think the turnover rate was when I, when I first showed up, it was the night I got out of jail and I had to go live somewhere. I had to figure it out in a city where I didn't know anybody. Uh, for a couple of days before they had a bed, which was uncommon for the time. You know, I, I met with Dirty. You guys know Dirty. He and I, uh, he was running security. And if you let him tell it, it's the hardest job in, in the whole thing. He, uh, he told me, he said, I don't know how this is possible, but we don't have a bed for you. You know, I, but one will show up in a day. You know, give me about five hours. I'm sure a bed will be open because someone won't show up. And I mean, it's true. When I, when I was there, we had high, high turnover. I don't know if anybody successfully discharged, quote unquote, but we kind of just did our thing. Uh, so what do you think that it's improved since the old house is my question? So I can't tell you any stats about the old facility, the old house, um, but I can tell you when we reopened in February of 2018, those first few months, it hovered around 17, 18% success rate. And in the past two and a half years, it's gone up to about 24, 25%. So we are increasingly rising, which is great. And there are multiple factors for that. I think part of it is it's the screening process. And I know it's screen, me saying screening process might sound fearful to some people, <laughs> right. but it's, just, it's making sure that you're ready to be there because if you're not ready, it's not going to work. It's just not, you have to be willing. Um, but yeah, there. Tim. Tim's an amazing guy and does a great, great job at at everything. I I can agree. You know, I I sat and I talked with him for a good bit of time. And you know, as the more that I talked to him and the more that I listened to him, the more that I realized this dude probably brought a structure to this place that it really was necessary. Because uh, you know, when I was there, we had our program director. Uh, I'm not going to say his name, but uh, he. Uh, he ran kind of a loose ship and we could pretty much do whatever we wanted to do. You know, I was fraternizing like crazy and it was just, that wasn't the right thing. I was wrong, but 
or we were allowed and nobody's told me no. So I was like, whatever. But, um, and that was also what we do as those people. But you know what, what I really enjoyed was being able to have the freedom of expression, but with a little bit of structure. And when I was talking to Tim, that structure made a huge difference. And even I walked away from that conversation, like, hell, I could do this. Let's do this. You know, it was motivating. Can you talk about the kind of motivation that you guys have seen? April, uh, we'll start with you. Uh, What kind of motivation have you seen from residents who show up, go through that screening process and have a few days to really process where they are? You know, you have residents that come in and they go through a screening process and there are a few, there are a few days and they're like, man, I'm tired of sleeping on the floor or this, these rules are bunk or whatever. But, um, there, there are those residents that like constantly like show up and do what they're asked to do, you know? And, um, I know, like, I think that those house meetings, they have a house meeting every Monday night. They're mandatory. All the residents have to come. So much fun. Yeah room yes and um I think that is like an incredible uh like morale booster you know they they talk about what the residents are doing right they talk about um they recognize all the new residents and stuff like that but I think it's a it's kind of an incredible thing because that new person gets to look around at like 85 other drug addicts and alcoholics sitting in that room that are doing the same deal as them like it's really powerful. Aaron always says, um, like he just talks about how there's all these people like, you know, freshly sober drug addicts and alcoholics. And there's, if there's no conflict in the house, like what a miracle, right? That's it's, true. You know, because, um, and so like, that's really motivating. And just, I think that, that people do well with, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's, you know, there's two phases and there's that motivation to get from phase one where you're sleeping on that mat on the floor and get to phase two and have a little bit more freedom, a little later curfew, things like that. Um, but I know for me, like nobody ever told me what time bedtime was like (laughs) nobody, what time lots out needed to be, or told me when I needed to get up. I'm a grown adult. You can't tell me this. Right. But like, I needed that. You know, I had never gone to bed on time or gotten up when I needed to, or, um, a lot of times, like I didn't take care of business. And so, um, you know, I just think that it's, it's really cool. Aaron always says you can't get anything done if you're sitting on your ass at the two, four all day, but, um, you know, just, just having like staff that's been there and like that just the common morale around like the community of people there, like really just builds each other up, you know, um, even doing chores, like chores is like a huge thing, you know, they rotate, rotate out and stuff like that. And, um, I just remember like thinking I have to be accountable for my chores, you know, my room's chores were like Wednesday and Thursday night. And I knew if I made plans on Wednesday and Thursday night, I needed to make like plans to do my chores. Right. And like, I just think that 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 was really cool because um, I just never had that before. And so there's that motivation through like doing something you've never done. And I know for me, like when I got to that place, I had um, just just the willingness to do something different. 
Like if you told me to jump, I was probably going to find a way to do it. Um, but I think, I think that's just one of those things like that willingness is, is amazing. It's that's powerful stuff. You know, the, the willingness is the one thing that I don't think family members understand. You know, Al-Anons is what I'll call them. Uh, don't really understand if they're not also involved in the program. Is untreated Al-Anons. That, yeah, untreated Al-Anons. They don't have their master's degree in detachment. Um, so, you know, it's something really difficult to understand is, you know, why can't you just get this? Why can't you just do, you know, the two forces is so successful, but my brother was one of the um, 80% that didn't make it, you know, like it's not that successful and it's really just a matter of willingness, but, um, and not being forced into it and again, being able to experience that spirit. So it sounds like we've talked about what really works, but you know, I know Adrian, it sounds like you probably give all the credit to Tim as far as what works, but I'd like to know in the three years that you've been there, what have you seen is what do you attribute most of their successful uh, discharges to? Aside from their willingness to do it and aside from the structure. um, And I was going to touch on this actually. um, I think a big component of it is the environment that we create. We create a family like environment um, because a lot of our residents and our people have burned all of their bridges. They don't have anyone else in their corner yet. I'm a big proponent that when you build someone up, when you build someone up, they soar. When you put someone down, they go down. That's why I'm always encouraging people. And, you know, even if, even if April did something that was half-ass or terrible, I'm still going to tell her it was great because the only way to work through criticism is in my opinion is to let that person know that it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail if this was not great, but you're great. And this is how we're going to improve on this. But it's, it's a judgment-free zone with the residents. We build, we help build them up and we give them this family-like environment that, you know, if they don't want to be here right now, that's okay. We'll be here when you're ready. That's okay. There's no judgment. If you want to go back out, we don't agree with it, but there's no judgment. We'll be here when you're ready. We'll always be here. Accountability without judgment. Right. Right. Because we've been there. Right. right. April, what works for you and what have you seen? from the resident's perspective that works with everybody who, who's able to successfully recover from this deal? I think one of the biggest things, and I know I said this earlier was the, the, just the community, you know, like nobody does this alone. Like if you think you're going to do it alone, good luck because I have tried and tried and tried and tried. Um, but the people that like really do like get plugged in, they find ways to be of service. They, you know, for me, I know this sounds really dumb, but when I first got there, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I just remember in the house meeting, they were like, find somewhere to be of service. That's Aaron's, you know, that's my impersonation. Y'all get into service with this big old beard. Hey, that's good. (laughs) Spent a lot of time with us. Yeah. And so I just remember thinking that. And so every time I'd want to like leave the two, four and go use, I would go and clean the dining room tables. 
and I would just wipe them off like or try to sweep the kitchen or whatever, just trying to be of service. I remember we kept getting in trap in trouble for not taking out the trash. So I made a point every morning, like I would go and take out the trash just so like the rest of us didn't get in trouble. Um, but like just those little ways of like getting plugged in or like, um, I don't know, just really getting to know like the other residents and having a family, you know, um, one of my best friends that I was saying that passed away a few weeks ago, we always used to joke because we shared a bunk bed and we were the same size. So we shared clothing. And so we're like, man, it feels like we're college roommates, you know? And like, we never had that. Like we didn't have a sister to share a closet with or like anyone to bond with. And we really bonded at the two floor. And, um, I just, I think that like having those relationships where people understand you is so incredible. That worked for me. No, um, one extra element that I know that I needed was a stern finger in my chest. This is what you need to do. And if you don't want to do it, then go back out there and try it again. Because if you think that's going to work, your insane ass is going to fail. And I'll be right here. And when you come back, beaten up, tattered, torn, torn down from life again, I'm going to tell you it wasn't life, kiddo. It was you. You were the problem. And if somebody hadn't looked me in the eye and said that, I think it was Fred. Then, uh, <laughs> good old Fred. Good old Fred. Then I don't know that I would have made it. Um, and I'm just really grateful for that. You know, the structure. I had the willingness. I knew what didn't work. I didn't want to do that again. I it was the pain got greater than I could tolerate anymore, and it's uh, it's just been life changing. And the two four gave me that platform. It gave me a place to stand up. It gave me a place to learn how to stand up again is really more accurate. So, uh, gosh, guys, I think that's it, ladies. This was great. This was great. Um, Any parting words? Yeah. To anyone that's listening, um, come to the two, four, if you need help, go somewhere, call someone, do something. Cause you can, you can beat this. And I know that's rich coming from someone that's not in recovery, but I've seen people beat it. I've seen people do it and miracles happen. They, you watch them happen. That's my favorite quote. So, thank you so much. April. What, what I thank you. Um, what would you say as parting words, having, you know, Adrienne said that she didn't have that experience of going through it. You have, what would you suggest? I just know it's possible. Like, I just know that like, if you have an open mind and willingness to just do what those people are asking you to do, because they have done the same thing, you know, and in the book, it talks about like, um, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, you know? And so at the two, four, it's the same thing. You know, if you follow the path, like you have a better chance um, at like beating this and it is a constant battle, but it's one that, um, I see purpose in and like, I just know it's possible. And it's yeah, sorry. Someone was walking into the restroom right next door. Um, and that's good because that willingness and the drive to do it is so necessary for everybody. Um, 
And that's it, y'all. Man, this was this was so fun for me. Uh, it was a, kind of a trip down memory lane too. This was great. Um, for anybody listening at home who wants to get involved, you can go to dallas24hourclub.org, right, Adrian? Yep. Yep. There's a, there's a place for you to give. There's a place for you to uh, learn how to be of service. And there's uh, contact information. I'll put all this in the description for everybody who's listening. And I'll put some show notes in there with some t- statistics and things like that. But uh, as a closing little bit of words, uh, just from my own experience, it's true. You can recover. If you don't know how to recover, call the 2-4 and figure out a way to get in. Because it's possible and we can make it happen with the power of uh, something that we don't fully understand. But that's there. And I call it the spirit of the universe. And that's it, y'all. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.